We are up to chapter six, Mishnah number six. These are the 48 ways to wisdom. And we are up to way number 25. Bekabalas Yesurim with the acceptance of pain and suffering. Now, given that we just recently began the month of Elul, of course, that's the month that precedes the high holidays, the special days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. This is the month of introspection. This is the month of repentance. And of course, during this month, we hear the shofar every morning. I figured it would be nice to maybe have the shofar on the podcast. So here is the shofar as we embark on hopefully what will be a successful month of Elul. Now, also, before we begin, I want to let the audience know that our team at Torch has designated the month of August to be Torch Podcast Improvement Month. Of course, here at Torch, we do a lot of different podcasts. The Ethics Podcast is, of course, one of many, many. We have the Parsha Podcast and Torah 101 and a slew, a bevy of other podcasts, and that's just mine, but of course my colleagues as well. Each one of them produces wonderful, exquisite shows. And we decided that we want to dedicate a month to try to get better, try to improve. And over the course of this month, we are conducting meetings and brainstorming and trying to figure out how we can better the product that we are offering. And part of that, part of this effort to try to get better is that we constructed a survey, and you can find the survey at torchsurvey.com, also in the link in the description of this podcast. We made a survey where we asked the audience, we asked you, we asked you about your, your listening habits, what you like, what you don't like so much, what you want to hear more of, what maybe you could hear less of, maybe some other areas where we can expand our programming and offerings. So do me a favor, before we begin with the show, visit torchsurvey.com, click the link in the description, and fill out the survey. Of course, you probably don't want to fill out the survey, but it's helpful for us. So far, the answers have been quite illuminating. The, The respondents have really given us an insight into what they like, what they don't like, what they want to hear more of, and what maybe less so. And some other things, some other areas in which we can offer resources and services, torchserver.com, link is in the description. Now, we have these 48 ways to wisdom, and if you think about it, it's a remarkable thing. The great sages of yore, the titans of our history, people who embodied wisdom, they did us a great service, and they said, we will organize for you. 48 different ways to achieve wisdom. You want to be wise? You have to do something to be deserving of it, to earn it, to acquire it. And they laid out for us 48 different ways to wisdom. And this one, way number 25, it's perhaps the hardest one for us to understand. Bekabalas Yisurim, with the acceptance 
of pain, of suffering, of tribulations. What is this idea that we should accept suffering? Of course, we don't want suffering. We don't want affliction. We don't want pain. It's our instinct to flee from suffering of any kind. The most primal human instinct is to seek and pursue pleasure and to flee and avoid pain and suffering. So this whole notion of accepting suffering, it seems to violate our most basic instinct. So how can anyone be expected to accept suffering? And how in any way does that lead towards the acquisition of wisdom, towards the acquisition of Torah? Now, the notion of accepting suffering, it's a major theme featured in the literature and amongst the sages. The Talmud tells us that two of the sages, they each had an aphorism. They each had an axiom, an adage that they would always invoke when bad things happened. The great Rabbi Akiva used to always say, Kal da'avirachmano, letav avid. Everything that God does is for the best. Whenever something bad would happen, something ostensibly bad would happen, and it's it's bad, it's it's painful, it's an affliction, it's it's suffering, it's unpleasant, it's something that you want to avoid. What would Rabbi Akiva say? How would he respond to such a circumstance? He would say, everything that God does is for the best. And if it happened to me, if it transpired, it must be that the Almighty allowed it to happen. And therefore, it must be good. And even if you cannot appreciate it, we don't see how bad things are really good. Rabbi Tiva shows us that there is a level of faith in God where you understand that He oversees everything. And He only allows things to happen to you that He deems appropriate to happen to you. And he is good, and everything that he does is good. And therefore, if something happened to you, it must be. It's good. And I think, just on an intellectual level, one way that we can make peace with this notion is to acknowledge our limitations to realize that we have an infinitesimally small perspective. How much of the world are we aware of? Even the world as it is today, you know, hey, how much of what happens in the world do we know? We, we tend to think, well, I have a, a pretty good grasp on what's happening and, you know, in, in the world and in, in people and in society. I kind of have a sense of what's happening. But the truth is, you know, we're, we're one of, I don't know, at eight, Billion people in the world? How much life experience, how much life perspective do we actually have? And that's only in present times. But the world's been around for a while. And we've only been around for a tiny, tiny, tiny slice of history. And of course, we believe that we're body and soul. We're not just a body. How much of our soul's history do we know? The Talmud tells us that our souls are as old as the world. 
No new souls have been created since the six days of creation. Do you know the history of your soul? Do you know its backstory? Do you know all the factors at play? Do you know what destiny your soul has? Do you know what part of Adam your soul emanates from? Do you have any idea about what your soul actually needs to achieve its purpose? We are effectively completely ignorant about everything. But we have faith, or at least we can have faith. And we understand that God, he knows everything. And all the variables of our life and all of existence and our soul, all the variables, all the factors, everything that can possibly be, God knows it all. And therefore, taking all of that knowledge into account, when something happens to us, it's for our benefit, it's for our best, even if we don't know. There's this old example about the parent who tackles a child. The child's making a beeline for the thoroughfare. And the parent chases them down and tackles them. And the kid starts crying. They're bleeding. And the kid is convinced that his parents must hate him. How else can you explain someone body slamming you into the pavement? And of course, the kid is unaware of the love inherent in that tackle. But think about it. You have an infant, a toddler. There is a big gulf between the intelligence, the perspective of the child and the parent. But the gulf between our perspective and God's perspective, it's not just vast, it's infinite. And we believe everything that he does is for our benefit. And thus we have the sage, the great Rabbi Ativa saying, call the Abed Rahman Everything that happens to you, even the bad things or what seems to be bad, even the affliction, even the suffering, even the pain, it's for the best. Now there was a second sage, and he had a different adage. He said, Gam Zu Latova, this is also for the best. So we have two of them. Everything that God does is for the best. And that's, that's adage number one. And adage number two is this too, Gamzu Latova is for the best. And the commentaries point out that there's a subtle difference between the two. If you say that everything that God does is for the best, that philosophy can tolerate, can allow that something bad happened, but that bad thing is done in service of the ultimate good. Yes, it's not good to be body slammed into the pavement. Being smashed into the concrete is not good. But that is preferable to the other option of barreling into the busy road. That would be the level, so to speak, of Rabbi Ativa. This when we say Gam Zulatova, this is also for the best, that's a much higher level. That's saying that this is also for the best, meaning that even the quote-unquote bad things, 
that are done to enable the good things, even those bad things, are not really bad. If we really understood the world, so to speak, from God's perspective, which is impossible, maybe that's something that has to do with the Messianic times. We are told that Messiah will bring about a time of joy and and delight and laughter because we'll finally be able to put all the pieces together. But comes along the other sage and says, even those things that are bad, they weren't, they aren't really bad. They are truly good. So we see that our sages have an attitude that they professed and they lived by where they accepted suffering. They recognized that suffering is actually only something which appears to be bad, but really it is good. But that's for the sages. For us, it's still hard. When something bad happens, when some sort of disappointment happens, when some sort of affliction befalls us, it's really hard to accept it. So how can we bring this idea a bit closer to our sensibilities, to our life? So perhaps we can suggest one idea, and then hopefully we'll try to bring it to the general objective of the Mishnah, namely how it can serve as a way to become more wise. We have a mitzvah in the Torah, Leviticus, not to take revenge, not to bear a grudge against someone. Someone does something bad to you. They harm you, they hurt you, they embarrass you. They cause you pain, they cause you distress, they cause you discomfort. You are not allowed to take revenge, even though you may have an instinct to do so. Rambam famously tells us that revenge is sweeter than honey. We all feel an urge to settle a score, but we cannot do it. It's against the Torah to take revenge or to even bear a grudge against someone who did something bad to you. And the commentaries tell us that there are a few ways to rationalize this mitzvah or these mitzvos. One idea is an element of faith, namely that when someone does something bad to you, they're not acting independently. They're just an implement in the hands of God. If God did not deem it fit that you receive this pain, this discomfort, this challenge born about by your friend, then you wouldn't have received it. We don't look at humans as the people or as the entities that cause us good or bad. It's it's really only God. And therefore, if someone slaps you proverbially or otherwise, Really, they are just executing the will of God. And therefore, why are you angry at this person? They did nothing to you. That's one idea of how we can understand the notion of not taking revenge. A second idea featured in the commentaries is that If someone does something bad to you, 
It means they do something bad to you physically or materially, not someone who does something bad to you spiritually. Someone causes you a monetary loss. Someone causes you some bodily displeasure. Someone causes you to have a bad experience in this world. Then you are barred from taking revenge. The idea behind not taking revenge, it's to recognize that ultimately matters in this world are trivial. What difference does it really make? After all, you're here, what, 70, 80, 90 years? It's just, it's temporary. It's ephemeral. It'll pass. This too shall pass. What difference does it really make? You're going to make a bit stink about it. It's just matters of this world. My goodness. How, how important is it really? If it was something about the, you know, the spiritual world, your soul for eternity, well, then you should get all worked up about it. But if it's just matters of this world, eh, what difference does it make? Perhaps we can say that this idea or these approaches for how to understand the restriction, the prohibition against taking revenge, it can be applied as well to the notion of our Mishnah of accepting suffering. You suffer. You experience hardship. You experience some sort of loss. Who brought that to you? Who caused that to happen? As believers, we realize that the fingerprints of God are on everything that happens to us. And if you realize that your pain comes from a loving father, so to speak, it's a little bit easier to tolerate. You realize that it's measured. You realize that it's purposeful. You realize that it's not just random. And there's a reason for it. And if God did it, there must be a very good reason for it. And if the suffering is in a matter of, you know, the physical world and everything that's included in that, the second reason may apply, namely that physical world, the passing world, the temporary world. Don't you realize that ultimately it's trivial? What difference does it really make? It doesn't existentially matter. And therefore you can accept, at least these are approaches, these are ways, these are ways to think about it. Obviously it's a high level. If someone can actually accept all the suffering and be joyous about it and, and not be depressed, to not lapse into depression or melancholy as a result, it's a very lofty and righteous level. But at least these are approaches. These are ways to think about it, ways to rationalize the notion of our Mishnah. I always think, you know, if you ever have a chance to watch an old video, people will place a tripod in the middle of New York City or, or Paris or London, you know, in, in the 1900s, 1905, 1908, and there's no sound you just see people, everyone's overdressed by modern standards, and no one's obese, of course, 
and there are horses and carriages in the street. And everyone's looking at the camera in a funny way. You think about that. You know, that's from 100, 120 years ago. And you think about all those people and how they probably cared so much about what their neighbor thinks about them, what their friends think about them. And they felt maybe handcuffed because after all, you know, I can't do it. And what will people think and how will it be perceived? You have this feeling like looking back at these videos and like no one in the video is even alive anymore. Who cares what they think? And their their lives came and they went, as we say in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah Kippur, like a dream, like a wind just comes and goes and disappears. Their life, hopefully they accomplished great things. But their physical life, now it's it's over. It's completely gone. It's forgotten about. Maybe they have some descendants. Maybe they have some righteousness that endures. But it's a nice thing to, I think, every once in a while think about how your current life in in your physical realm, of course, the spiritual lives forever. But the physical world, the physical domain, the physical realm that we inhabit, all that, it's, it's, it's really like, it's just that old photo, that old video from Paris. So now people are not riding horses, you know, they're driving around in their cars, which will soon be very outdated. Really? You had an internal combustion engine? They still had Buicks then? I read about it once. Everything's shaped so funny. People were so un- uncouth and unsophisticated, or maybe the opposite, I don't know. But that's really the life that we live in the physical domain. And yes, we have good days, bad days. But ultimately, if you really are grounded in your identity as a soul, it's all trivial. And you feel some physical pain. You stub your toe. Oh, it hurts so much. Oh, it's turning colors. Okay, in a week, it won't exist anymore. My mom has a great line. The difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut is two weeks. It's like a bad haircut. You know how upset you are at the barber. Oh no, they missed this spot. Oh, they cut too much. It's too short. I give my, my boys haircuts. And the one thing they all agree upon is that it's too short. Oh, it's too short. I look, I'm all bald. But they all come back for haircuts because I give the best haircuts. It doesn't matter. Even if it is too short, come on, in a week or two, you won't be able to tell the difference. That's life here. That's physical pain. That's physical stuff. Of course, we would not wish it on anyone. And it's very painful. It's very hard. It's a high level to actually embody this attitude. And we want none of it. We don't ask for suffering. We don't want it. But there is a philosophy. There's a perspective. There's a rationale that when something bad happens to you, and it's something which is in the physical domain, it's something that in a 100 years from now will not matter. So it's just a temporary thing. It's a temporary thing. And this too shall pass. In all matters of the physical world, it's all temporary. Only the soul endures. And yes, we want to avoid physical pain. And yes, we want to avoid emotional pain or or shame of any kind. And we would never request it. But we realize that it comes from God. And therefore, it must be targeted. And if it's 
something we suffer in the physical realm, ultimately, it's trivial. It's not permanent. Even a thousand years in the physical world, it's still temporary. And compared to anything eternal, it doesn't matter. And perhaps this can be a perspective on accepting suffering. Realize, A, it's from God. It's targeted. It must be for a good reason because God doesn't do things that are bad. And yes, when you focus on the suffering, realize that it's small in the grand scheme of things. The world is full of minor nuisances. And we just accept it. You know, TV commercials. We don't have a TV. But whenever we stop off in a hotel, the kids want to put on the TV, I'm like astonished at how many commercials there are. And they seem to all be around things to keep your clothing clean. I don't understand. You see back-to-back commercials of two different brands of laundry detergent. And you're being bombarded. I always tell my kids, whenever there's a commercial, I say, okay, what are they trying to sell you? What are they trying to sell you? We create like a game. Like, can you guess what the actual thing they're trying to convince you to do is as soon as possible? They're trying to manipulate you. But it's it's annoying. You want to watch your game. You want to watch your show. You got to deal with the commercials. Or it used to be there was like buffering. Remember that? Dial up. Red lights in the street. I'm trying to drive. Slow cashiers, even at Costco, even at Costco, we saw a slow cashier. Or, God forbid, if there's a loud leaf blower and you are trying to record a podcast and it's making so much noise and you become so environmentally friendly, can't they have an electric, an electric leaf blower that doesn't make so much noise? Life is full of annoyances, but it's no big deal. What difference does it make? It's small. What's big and what's small? What's trivial and what really matters? The Torah's perspective is that everything in the physical world, that's ultimately in this physical world, not something which you're using the physical world for a spiritual world end, everything that's here, it's trivial, it's small. And even the most minor mitzvah, even the smallest spiritual deed is massive. But to be convenient in this world and to avoid annoyances, eh, it's trivial. I think this is a framework for the general notion of accepting affliction and suffering. Of course, it demands a lot, but at least on an intellectual level, on an abstract level, we can understand it. But how does this redound to wisdom? Our sages are telling us that this is a way to receive wisdom. It's a way to acquire Torah. Why would accepting suffering, why would that be a way to receive wisdom? Now, what's interesting about this is that we see this principle elsewhere in the literature. The Talmud tells us that if someone is joyous, with suffering. So that seems like it's a higher level, not just to accept it, but to be happy with it. But it's in the same ballpark. If someone is joyous with suffering, they merit olam haba. 
Moreover, the Talmud tells us that there are three gifts that God bestowed upon the Jewish people. And these three gifts he only gave us through suffering. And they are Torah, the land of Israel, and Olam Haba. The three greatest gifts that we've received were all granted to us via suffering, via affliction. The land of Israel, it's acquired through suffering. Olam Abba, the world to come, the eternal world, it's acquired through suffering and affliction. Torah, it's acquired through suffering, through affliction. This is a stunning idea. It's an expansion of the idea of our Mishnah. And it's not clear to us what the mechanism is. How does suffering earn these specific things? So here's the idea. And I'm very happy to tell you that I thought of this idea myself. And then I was perusing some of the sources and I found that this idea is featured in the works of the Maharal. And that made me very happy, I, I must I must attest. When we talk about suffering in the context of our Mishnah, we already said, what, what kind of suffering are we talking about? What kind of affliction? What kind of pain and discomfort are we talking about? It's the pain, the suffering, the affliction of the body, not of the soul. We are two opposite entities bound together by divine decree. You have a body, and that is an independent organism that has an agenda, has things that it likes, things that it dislikes, things that it wants, and things that it doesn't care for. And you have a soul, and it too has an agenda. It too has things that it wants and it dislikes. It has things that are what it's trying to pursue and things that mean nothing to it. And those two competing, really opposite entities are bound together. And the free will is the choice to favor one of these two identities. And it's a zero-sum game. The more you favor one, the less of a say, the less of an expression the other one has within you. Our sages tell us the Torah is compared to bread, it's compared to oxygen, it's compared to water. Prayer three times a day is compared to the three meals that people typically eat. Just as the body has a whole schedule and a day and a, and a, and a job and a responsibility and, and a whole life, the soul has a parallel version of that. And the mitzvos are a comprehensive list of everything that the soul wants. And the reason why we don't feel a drive, per se, to mitzvos, the reason why we don't lust after them, crave them, dream about them, chase them and pursue them, naturally by default, is because we start off life and the breakdown between these two identities, it's 99.9% body, 
and a small little faint flickering little tiny little spark of soul. And the hope is that over the course of our life, we can change the balance of power. And we can start caring about other things and stop caring about other things. Why do we educate children? What's wrong with them the way they are? Because the way they are, they want candy. And they want to play in the sand. Nothing wrong with candy or the sand. But we don't want adults doing that. We want them to get into other things, right? We want them to be more sharing, more caring for others, to engage in charity, into building other people, other institutions, helping other people, helping their community, trying to advance not just their body, but their mind, their intellect, their emotion, their soul. We're always trying to reorient our identity, to change that balance of power. And the more we move in one direction, that changes everything. And there's cycles. There's the the virtuous cycle, and then there's the vicious cycle. The virtuous cycle is when you do a mitzvah, and you start to act a little bit more like a soul, and that changes the balance of power. And now you edge a little bit, you inch a little bit closer to being a soul, and that actually makes the subsequent mitzah a little bit more natural because now, after all, your your composition of body and soul has changed. And that thus will lead to the next mitzvah, which will lead to the next mitzvah and so on. Each one will reinforce, for, further and further reinforce your changing identity to become more like a soul. On the other hand, if a person neglects the soul and emphasizes just the body, well, every choice moves a person's balance of power in one direction or the other. And thus, the next time, the mitzvah will be even harder to do. And so on. I don't know if I'm explaining this carefully or, or accurately or well enough. But there's this idea, and again, this is well developed in the sources, that every choice you make will either, will, will change your orientation, will change the, the breakdown, so to speak, of those two identities within you. Which one has a bigger say? Which one has a, bigger influence over you. And the desire, so to speak, to pray, the desire, so to speak, for Torah, which is bread, you'll start feeling that a little bit. The senses will change. A person can go their whole life without studying Torah even once, and they'll survive. If if Torah is bread, if Torah is water, if Torah is oxygen... How do they survive? The answer is, is that, well, the soul's not really playing a, playing a role here. And they're existing solely as a body. Solely spelled S-O-L-E-L-Y. And of course, that's a shame. But there is a process through which the orientation of a person changes. And they can begin to develop a taste for matters of the spirit, for matters of the soul. And every choice they make in that direction will give them a deeper taste of those things and so on. And it will further reinforce itself. And as they become more of a soul first, the body becomes secondary, tertiary, ancillary. 
and the soul becomes more primary. Pursuit of wisdom. That is a soulful pursuit. Not only does the body not get excited and titillated by this idea, the notion of studying Torah, of advancing in wisdom, the body actually resists it and rejects it. The body is not naturally drawn to seek this sort of wisdom. And thus our sages tell us, there are things that you acquire with suffering, meaning the only way for you to have these things is if you're a soul. Only a soul can really acquire the land of Israel, Olamaban Torah. And how do you get there? How do you become a soul? You have to divorce yourself, so to speak, divest yourself, so to speak, of being, of identifying as a body. And that's a painful experience. Because your senses, at least by default, they are interconnected, they are linked, they are enmeshed with the body. And thus, saying goodbye to that and adopting a new persona, that is a painful experience. And that's what our sages are telling us. One way to acquire wisdom, to acquire the pursuits of the soul, is by eliminating the vies, the control that the body has over who you are, over your identity. And if you accept it, and you don't resist it, that will have the desired effect of changing your orientation and making you a little bit more soul over body. And thus, merely accepting suffering, that can serve as a way to acquire wisdom. A very advanced and very subtle idea. You have two entities, two identities, two completely non-compatible but coexisting realities, entities within you. The body, the soul. And if one of them is in charge, the other one is not in charge. And to the degree that one is in charge, the other one is less in charge. The soul wants wisdom. The soul wants Torah. The body is not interested in that at all. If you could find a process by which you are distancing yourself, so to speak, from the identity of being a body and embracing the identity of the soul, that in itself is a way to accomplish wisdom. Your soul craves Torah the same way two magnets attract each other. And the only reason why you don't feel that is because you got all those blockages that are resisting that and pushing that away and repelling that and trying to push you towards all sorts of other things. If you could remove a little bit of that influence to the degree that you do remove that other influence, that opens up the portals of wisdom. Again, I'm asking you to fill out the survey at torchsurvey.com. You can find the link also in the description. We have completed way number 25, but Kabbalah is soon with the acceptance of suffering and affliction. I'm looking forward, please God, to way number 26 and so on. We're more than halfway there. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I would love to get some questions, some comments, and some 
feedback.